Okay, so this morning we are thinking, as I indicated earlier, something slightly out of sequence. We're doing Friday's lecture today. We're looking at the question of conscience. Um, now, I'm a moral theologian. Um, as we picked up in the history session we did a couple of weeks ago, I'm following a revival of St. Thomas, uh, predominantly via a chap called Sylvain Pinkers, in terms of looking at moral theology through the lens of virtue, rather than primarily through the lens of law and obligation. Now, the issue of conscience is a big thing in the era of law and obligation and the manuals that dominated the teaching of moral theology for most of the last four or five hundred years. Um, but for what I'm wanting to teach, I'd be quite happy to not deal with conscience at all. To have it in somebody else's course, maybe in your canon law course, but not in my course. Conscience is important if you're concerned about guilt. Am I guilty for what I've done? Was it my fault? Then conscience becomes a big issue. Um, so, whereas in contrast, in the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas, there are three very short articles on conscience in his entire thing. Whereas when you look at the legalistic manuals that came most of the last 400 years, they'd have a big thing on conscience very early on in the book, because whether you were guilty or not, this was a big question. It's not a big question with St. Thomas. He, he kind of deals with it tangentially. It's there, it's in the mix. Um, why am I saying that? So is con why are we doing con We're doing conscience because the last 400 years it's been a big thing on the table of contents. So we've got it on there, the conscience has it on there. Um, but um, I wouldn't see it as a big thing. What do we need to cover today? Well. We're going to look at the question of what conscience is. Um, and there isn't actually a simple answer to that. Um, so you might, the catechism quoting the Second Vatican Council calls it a place. It's your innermost sanctuary. It also calls it a voice. Um, so, who can remember the Disney movie Pinocchio? Yes? With Jiminy Cricket, his little conscience speaking. So that's a vision of what a conscience is. Sorry, Matt, you were going to... No. Um, but neither of those are literally true, because you don't actually have a Jiminy Cricket speaking to you. So this is what we'd call an, um, a metaphor um, or analogy. So it, on one level, helps indicate what we're talking about, but it's not a strictly speaking um, definition. So what it is, why follow it? So this is a question we need to be very clear about in today's lecture. 
You have this thing called a conscience. Well, why is it important to follow it? So that's what we're going to look at today. Even more important, why follow it even when it's wrong? So even if your conscience is wrong, your conscience is speaking to you, you're supposed to follow it. Well, why? Um, more briefly, we'll look at how to form your conscience. And um, the question of when your conscience is blameworthy. So you can follow your conscience and still go to hell because basically you had a duty to form your conscience and you didn't. And you kind of choose, therefore, to think the wrong thing. You, you didn't make the effort to learn what was right. Okay, so... Um, if you are making a, I'm not sure I've actually said this, but I would encourage you each week to have a single sheet that you summarize what I'm writing on this board, that the board I give you is basically a single summary of the day's lecture, maybe separate from your normal notes, um, because of how I'll usually, I try to organize the, the sheet in a, visual, clear manner with everything there together. So I'm going to leave it there, but I'm going to write some more stuff later this morning. Okay, so let's go to the lecture notes. So, page one. So some of this I've already said. Um, why study conscience and moral theology? That it's a hangover from a more legalistic earlier age that if morality is about guilt and law then conscience is relevant to moral theology then I pose the question what is conscience and I say two popular metaphors first a place and then quoting Gaudium et Spes which is quoted in the catechism man's most secret core and his sanctuary also, it's called a voice, calling him to do what is good and avoid evil. So this is also a description in the Catechism. But as I say, these are metaphors. They're not strict philosophical definitions. So they tell us something but a metaphor. It's a bit like, you know, the Bible says that God is a rock. Well, he's not a rock. Uh, but it does tell us something to say he's a rock. It tells us that he's there's an image of strength, of immovability, of um, something bigger than you are. Um, but he isn't a rock. Well, in the same way, conscience is a voice, but it isn't, strictly speaking, a voice. Now, I know, see, I say conscience does not refer to I want to do this, but rather I think I should do this. So, 
you will sometimes have someone say, oh, well, in conscience, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. Whereas what they mean is I don't want to do that. What conscience means is I have a sense I shouldn't do that, which is different from what I want. Yes, yeah, so that's a, a different, in a sense, voice. The voice that says what I want is different from a voice saying I should. Now, very briefly, I say complex linguistic origins. So, in the Old Testament Hebrew, you'll have lots of references to the heart of the human person. And the word conscience doesn't appear in the Old Testament at all. In the New Testament Greek, there's a word called synaidesis, used by St. Paul 30 times, and it somehow assimilated the Hebrew heart of the Old Testament with a classical legal Latin conscientia. Um, now, why am I saying that? I say, note the word conscience in the New Testament cannot be read in a modern sense of the word. That's the, the basic point I, I'm going to say and leave. So that in the New Testament, when Paul speaks of conscience, it just means something different from our modern use. So sometimes I use conscience in quite different senses because it didn't have a fixed, precise meaning in his context. And obviously there are lots of things when we read the Bible, we need to be aware of that. What's some examples of what it does mean when he says it? That's a good question, and I don't have an answer. Um, so... Um, Yeah, um, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He uses it differently in slightly different contexts. Um, okay. So um, actually, before turning the page, I'm going to write a bit more on the board. Um, I'm going to make a distinction between a right conscience and a good conscience. So in your intellect, in your thinking, you can be right or you can be wrong. You can be in error. Um, so, is it a sin to cheat on your taxes? Now, um, is that, there's an answer to that question. You, your answer, is it right or is it wrong? So that's one issue. Your conscience, is it accurate at the level of intellect? Okay, so here we're thinking of the question of accuracy. But you can also have a conscience that is good or bad.
and that's something in your in your will and the sense in your heart. So I think that I should pay my country, pay my taxes, but I don't do so. So I have a bad conscience. I'm acting in bad conscience. Whereas I thought I didn't have to pay my taxes, and I didn't pay my taxes, and I acted in good conscience. I was wrong, but I acted in good conscience. I, I followed my conscience. Do you see the difference? One is about accuracy, one is about the goodness or badness of whether I'm following it. So, to map this out, um, you can obviously have a good, right conscience. That you know the right thing and you do the right thing. You do, so it's, it's right and it's good, your conscience. You can also have a good, wrong conscience. So you do the wrong thing, but you thought it was right, and so your will was good. But you can also have an evil right conscience. So your conscience told you the truth, it was right, but you chose not to follow it. So you have an evil in your will, but right in your intellect conscience. Have I thoroughly confused you? Could you elaborate on the last one? You said, do the right thing. Okay, let me start from the beginning. But I will. Um, so, there's one question about whether I'm accurate in my thinking. That's right or wrong. Whether I'm following that is in my will, and that makes me good or bad. So if I do what I think is right, then I am good in my action. If I refuse to do what I think is right, then I'm bad in my action, evil. So good and evil is whether I am following my conscience. But right or wrong, is whether the conscience is accurate in itself. So sometimes your conscience tells you the wrong thing. So your conscience can be right or wrong. But you also have the matter of whether you're going to follow your conscience. And that makes your will good or evil.
So, um, we wanted an example of an evil right conscience. So, your conscience is accurate, it's right, but it's evil in that you choose not to follow it. That's fine, that's what you started here. Okay. Um, yeah. So, is there an evil wrong conscience? Yes, so that would be kind of be more obvious. Um, so, your con. No, actually, that's even more, so it's less obvious. Um, we'll come on to an example. So, St. Thomas says, um, gives the example um, a man sleeps with a woman thinking that she's his wife. Yeah, th this is the example St. Thomas gives. Um, um, so, in our context it may not be as common, but if you imagine marrying someone at the age of 16, and then you go off to war, and you come back in 10 years' time, you might not recognize each other. Or you might easily confuse a brother and a sister. Or that you might be confused for your brother and you might confuse her for her sister. Yeah? So to think you're sleeping with your spouse when you're not actually is a situation that has occurred down the years. And particularly, you could imagine if your wife's sister always liked you, she might say she is when you've come back 10 years later. So, you sleep with a woman that you think is your wife. Um, so your conscience is good. You did think she was your wife. But actually she wasn't your wife. So what you did was wrong, but in your will you were good. Now, how much of an effort were you obliged to make to figure out whether she was your wife? That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So, she looked hot, um, and you hadn't been home for 10 years, and you weren't too fussed whether it actually was your wife, or she was just saying she was. Yeah, so, yes, you made a judgment that this was your wife, but actually you should have kind of found, ascertained that a bit more security than than you did. This is the thing of forming your conscience, yeah? So we have a duty to form our conscience, not just to make a judgment and run with it, but in a sense to test our conscience, form our conscience, form the circumstances around the facts to clarify what is right or wrong. Do we have an obligation to uh, form our conscience even when it's been malformed? Let's say, like, like, so we would have like a bad teacher who taught us something. Do we have the obligation to go back and make sure he's what he, what he said was correct? Yes, we do. Um, but the question is how how much of an obligation? Um, so, 
you know, we all know there are such things as bad teachers and teachers that teach us erroneous things. Um, you know, I lived in a time in the 90s when in the seminary all kinds of erroneous, heretical things were being taught. I knew that was the case. I had a pretty clear duty to test what was being said against the caschism when it was published and so forth. If I was a lazy student and I didn't really care, I just went with whatever I heard because that was less work than reading a book. Um, then I'm failing to test. That, that Actually testing my teacher is actually a normal thing to do. So in a sense, I am exposing myself to your testing by having you read the catechism in parallel with my teaching. It gives you the capacity to say, but it says here, yeah. But it's humanly impossible to test everything every teacher has said to you through your whole life. So it, would, it wouldn't be reasonable to think that there's an obligation to reevaluate everything every time. But if you haven't seen your wife for 10 years and she looks 10 years older, um, you do actually have a, a pretty strong obligation to be sure this is your wife. Yeah. So that's the example St. Thomas gives. So, you sleep with your wife after 10 years. Um, but you didn't think she was your wife. You thought she was her hot younger sister, who, although you married your wife 10 years ago, you actually were hedging your bets even then. And when you come back 10 years later, you think this woman in front of you is actually her younger sister, who you'd always had your eye on. And so you sleep with someone who you think isn't your wife. So you've done something evil in your will, even though actually she was your wife. Yes? So you were right, but evil. St. Thomas also throws this, yes, so there, the conscience is wrong. Um, it would also be possible to, um, let's see, I'm just trying to line up this example here, St. Thomas finishes it. So, um, You don't sleep with her. Sorry, this, this is getting complicated now. Um, so you think you're wrong and you refuse to do what you think. No, let me get this head. Sorry. Um, we'll come back to this later. It might be clearer later. Um, but basically, you might be both wrong and evil. You choose to do the wrong thing but actually it was right. So in your will, you've done what you thought was wrong, but actually it wasn't wrong, it wasn't sinful. Isn't that example evil? 
and then it's also wrong because you thought it was right. So your conscience thought that what it was doing was slipping with. Accuracy and intention were both off. Yeah. So it wasn't accurate of what he was thinking it was. And his intention was to be evil, so that was evil. Okay, so, so yeah, so in that, in that case, yeah, so that we have therefore an example of evil and wrong. So we've covered all our bases, yes? I think so. Okay. And so basically, as Thomas maps this out, all of those things can be flipped. So you have four possible permutations um, evil, wrong conscience. So the point is, there's one issue which is, in terms of accuracy in your intellect, are you right or wrong? And then there's a question in your will, are you going to follow it? And that's a question that means you are rendered good or evil. Because you should follow your conscience, and if you do follow your conscience, that makes you good. If you refuse to follow your conscience, that makes you evil. But there's then a slightly step back issue whereby you can be evil from a different reason because you didn't make the effort to form your conscience. You didn't make the effort to clarify the facts. An example like... <clears throat> I guess this is, I don't know if this falls into this category, but like, let's say somebody is starving for food and their conscience tells them don't steal that orange or whatever, but yet he still does it. But he does it out of necessity. He knows he shouldn't, or he's been taught not to, but yet he still acts. What would, it, what would happen then? Anyone, everyone hear the example? So somebody's starving and they steal an orange and they were told from a young age, you must never steal. So even though he's starving to death, he has in his thinking, the judgment of his conscience, that it is a sin to take the apple. But he takes it anyway. So in his will, he is evil because he is doing what he thinks is wrong that's what he's been told. Now in fact, as the church sees it, in that scenario, actually that isn't theft. Um, we'll look later in the course at the whole definition of property, but basically God gave the goods of creation to all humanity, and in any case of extremity, that um, universal destination of the goods takes priority. And if you're starving to death, it is no longer an act of theft. So he was wrong in thinking he was stealing. He had a right to take the food. It wasn't an act of theft. But because he thought it was wrong and he did it anyway, he was evil in his will. I was just going to say, does it, does it fit into the model of this conscience, or does this limit those kinds of scenarios? No, I think in that scenario, he, his conscience told him it was wrong, but he did it anyway. Now, his 
conscience had been badly formed by his parents in the scenario we're describing. And many people, that is the case with all kinds of things. But then, like, it's like, when we talk about the circumstances, like, that also has some stuff to do with it as well. And this doesn't seem to be analyzing that very... So, then we're coming on to the question, he did something, he has an evil will because he did what he knew he thought to be wrong. Then the question is, how guilty is he, given the circumstances of his starving? How guilty is he, in terms of degrees of guilt, for having done something evil? And then the circumstances change the degree of his guilt. But they don't remove it, because he's done something he thought was wrong, even though actually it was right. Okay, let's go back to my notes then. So, page two of the notes. And basically, I'm now going to try and say a bit more technically what I've said here on the board. So, if this got you confused, no, hopefully, hopefully we'll go through it a bit more slowly and it shouldn't be too bad. Okay, so, I said with respect to what is the conscience, I said these are metaphors, these aren't strict definitions. What is a real definition at the level of philosophy, doctrine, what, what is a definition of a conscience? And I note that actually part of what is confusing here is there are actually two rival competing definitions. So if you read different books and even different saints, they will use the word conscience differently. So this is, you know, also when you're arguing with somebody or a parishioner is arguing with you, you need to be aware people will use the same word, conscience, differently. And sometimes, I think with the parishioner, to just say, well, what do you mean by that word? Let me say what the church means by that word here. Um, okay, so, top of the page there, the first sentence I put there, conscience is a faculty. Uh, do you all know what I mean by that? Faculty in the sense of a power, an ability, an aspect of your own. It's something you can do. Um, you all have the faculty of writing. Um, well, in the human person, as St. Thomas or St. Augustine would describe it, there are certain things that define your nature and you have certain faculties, abilities. So, First definition, conscience is a faculty, a faculty that includes both your intellect and your will. Somehow both of these are involved in your conscience. So this approach argues that the intellect alone isn't sufficient to act because the will also is involved in action. So this approach is used by um, the Manuelist Peschke, it's used by Cardinal Newman, the old manuals before the council, this was basically their entire approach. So you would imagine in this approach that you have an intellect, you have a will, and you almost have a kind of third thing within you, this kind of this conscience. Um, but I note there isn't a precise anthropology that's used in this approach. Uh, this approach doesn't define how many faculties the human person possesses. 
Have you done in philosophy? So St. Augustine says the human person has intellect, will, and memory, where St. Thomas says there's an intellect and a will, and the memory is just a part of the intellect. So that they structure their description of the human person slightly differently. So in the description of conscience as a faculty, it's not very precise where that fits as a philosophical structure within the person. But it is a common way of speaking about the faculty, about the conscience. A second and here more precise way of speaking about conscience is to say that it is an act. It's a judgment of reason, an act of the intellect. I.e. conscience is not a faculty per se, and I say this is the approach of St. Thomas, the Catechism, and the Veritatis Splendor. And this approach argues that you only need two faculties, the intellect and the will. There's no need to posit the existence of yet another faculty, conscience, because the intellect can judge practical matters, and the will can then carry them out. So in this description, basically conscience is just an aspect of your will a subsection of your of, of your intellect rather a subsection of your intellect the judgments of your intellect that are about is this right or is this wrong that's conscience that's an act of conscience Sam um, yeah just to clarify you said the intellect can judge it and then the will can carry it out yes right. so I make the judgment that I should do my homework and my will chooses to do that. Or I make the judgment that I should do my homework and my will chooses to go to the bar instead. So, that's the question, what is it? Now, why should you follow it? I say here, why is conscience binding? So we use this phrase that conscience is binding. You're obliged to follow your conscience. Well, why? St. Thomas phrases it as I put here. Reason says this is God's law. Thus to spurn reason is to spurn God's law. So I think that this is what God is telling me in his law. So if I do something else, then I'm rejecting God's law. And that's why you have to follow your conscience. Because conscience says this is God's law. Having phrased it that way, does that make it clear why it's hugely important to follow what your conscience tells you? And if somebody else talk, kind of arguing with you says, ah, but I should do something else, well, that really is what they mean conscience is. Whatever you think is telling you what you should do as the ultimate appeal, that's what you think conscience is, basically. Because conscience is this ultimate judgment. After looking at all the facts, judging, 
right or wrong. That's what conscience does. So I listen to what mommy says, I listen to what daddy says, I listen to what my big brother says, I listen to what the Pope says, I listen to all these people, and ultimately I make a judgment in my intellect. And that judgment is an act of conscience. And when I compare what my big brother says to what my mother says, these aren't the same level of authority, are they? That depending on the age of my big brother, depending on what my mother's like as a person, yeah? As I'm listening to these different opinions. But then I also have my own reasoning process as I'm listening to their opinions to evaluate and come to a conclusion, a judgment that is an act of the intellect. And my intellect makes this judgment about something being right or wrong. And when I make that judgment, I, what I mean is that is what I think God's law says. And therefore I've got to do it. That, or at least it's binding on me to do it. And I am evil in my conscience if I don't follow. Okay, spelling this out, just back to my notes here. Um, the authority of reason. Actually, I've mistyped that. I said, we will look at this in more detail in natural law later in the course. Um, but the authority of reason. So in the Catholic tradition, reason is hugely important. You know, why do you do two years of philosophy here? Because thinking, reason is important. If you went to a Protestant um, seminary, they wouldn't do philosophy courses because they believe in the Bible. They don't believe in the power of reason. So, you know, Calvin and others would say that reason is corrupted. We believe as Catholics in the power of reason, the authority of reason, the ability of reason to tell us right and wrong. What that means in this context is your reasoning is important in judging um, and what you should be following. So quote St. Thomas, reason is the measure of human actions. So in as much as an action is human, it is a reasonable action. An act devoid of reason isn't a human act, says St. Thomas, even if it's an act of a human. So my heart is beating at the moment um, that's an act of a human, but I'm not choosing to cause my heart to beat. So it's, it's basically, it's an animal act rather than a human act. A human act is when the reason is engaged with it, as St. Thomas's meaning. That's what makes me the act human as opposed to just a, an animal act. Yes, question. Why does conscience have authority? So I'm just driving the point home. Because conscience is a judgment of reason, and reason has authority, that's why conscience has authority. And so both of the 
definitions at the top of the page, conscience is a faculty, conscience is an act. Reason is involved in both of those, and that's why conscience has authority. And then the last thing I say on that page, just a brief freedom of conscience. So the freedom of conscience is an immediate consequence of the recognition of its authority. So freedom of conscience means we shouldn't force people to do things they think are wrong. So if we recognize this thing called conscience that people have within them, the capacity to judge right and wrong, and they have with them, because they are rational beings, a duty to judge right from wrong, then we can't force people to do things they think are wrong. That's what we call freedom of conscience. Now we might need to restrict them for the sake of others, or point out the consequences so if you say to the rector, well, in conscience, I don't think I need to go to Mass on Sunday, um, the rector can say, well, in conscience, you can think that and do that, but you can't stay here. Yes? Um, so freedom of conscience doesn't mean there are no consequences, but it does mean we shouldn't force someone to do what is contrary to their conscience. This is particularly important when you're dealing with minorities. So we, certainly in Western Europe, where Christians are a very small minority now, for us to be granted freedom of conscience becomes really important. So the government is saying, you must do this, and we're saying that's contrary to our religion, that's contrary to our judgment of conscience. Um, the freedom of conscience becomes a, a big thing for a minority that has a different judgment to most of the people around in that society. Okay, top of page three. Okay, the erroneous conscience. So this is what we've been talking about already. So quoting the Catechism, a human being must always obey the certain judgment of his conscience. If he were to deliberately act against it, he would condemn himself. Yet it can happen that moral conscience remains in ignorance and makes erroneous judgments about acts to be performed or already committed. But even so, you should obey your conscience. You don't have anything else to obey. That's what conscience means this judgment that it's right or wrong. So if someone says, well, the Pope says that, but in my conscience, I'm going to do the opposite. Well, if their conscience does truly think that, then they should do that. But that doesn't mean they can coherently say they're still a Catholic. Um, that you hear what the Pope says? You think long and hard, and you come to a different judgment. Well, you should follow what your conscience says. But that doesn't mean you can say you're still Catholic. 
Whereas a normally thinking in terms of forming your conscience process is part of how I come to a judgment is I listen to the Bible, the catechism, the Pope, the tradition. Um, and that's how I come to my judgment about right and wrong. And that's a, in a sense, a Catholic processing of conscience, forming conscience. Okay, so back, uh, sorry, back to my notes here. Uh, so I then have a, in bold, I'm quoting St. Thomas, when erring reason proposes something as being commanded by God, then to scorn the dictate of reason is to scorn the commandment of God. So that basically I've said already, but that's just a, a longer quote from St. Thomas saying that. Then I ask the question, if I was not to obey the judgment of my conscience, what else would I obey? What else could I obey? Any suggestions? Say scripture. But why would you obey scripture? So my point is, your conscience would tell you to obey scripture if that's the criteria you've given. So whenever somebody puts out a kind of rival to conscience, actually what they're indicating is that their conscience is telling them that's the thing they should obey. So that still is really their conscience making the judgment. That maybe there's something I don't feel and I don't understand but I think I should obey the Bible, and the Bible says this. But that's still my conscience making that judgment to obey the Bible. Yeah? How does that work for the case of the apostles, then? Because I wouldn't say they were operating under good conscience when, by listening to Christ, I guess. Like, why, why, would you, why would you listen to Christ? Other than the fact that he's showing you that he's God. So it's not only your conscience acting, is it? Um, I'm not sure. Explain the example. So the apostles are following Jesus as opposed to following what? Is there a dilemma you're putting or is... Um, okay. Okay, because sometimes it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's just a prompting. So I imagine that when they began to follow the Lord Jesus, there wasn't a sense of duty. There was probably a sense of attraction. Josh? I was... Okay. I was just thinking what he was saying. So. Okay. Also, like, it seems to me that as they act according to whatever's presented before them, their conscience is born as well. And why are they following this rabbi? They're following because they have a sense that actually he has the truth. And so they are choosing to form their conscience. It's rational to, to act in that way. Actually, that's a very clear way of phrasing it, yes. It's rational to act in that fashion. That's how reason, intellect works, is we look for someone who knows more than we do and we learn from them. 
we choose to form our intellect from people who know more than us. And that's just what rational beings do. That's how we learn. Where someone who says, I'm only going to accept what I've figured out for myself, well, they're not going to know very much, are they? So who here believes in the existence of Africa? And how many of you have been to Africa? Okay, so we can choose to believe him. We can choose to believe the other people that... My point is, we, we know Africa exists because other people have told us. Yes? Um, and actually, that's how we know most things other people have told us. And we listen and we learn from people we trust. But we choose who we trust. In that we evaluate their accuracy, their reliability. And so we become responsible, blameworthy, for who we choose to follow. So the conclusions, the judgments I make in my intellect, I'm responsible for. If I always choose to follow the advice of someone who's telling me something easy, well, I should have enough common sense to know that life isn't always easy, that I, I need to hear from someone who's also challenging me. Okay, back to my notes, page three. So I've got a little section there called Blameworthy and Unblameworthy Error. And the basic point here is I say, ignorance of error doesn't necessarily excuse. So you might not know you're in error. That's what basically it means to be in error. You don't know you're in error. But that doesn't mean you're not responsible for the fact you're in error. So quoting the catechism, this ignorance can often be imputed to personal responsibility. This is the case when a man takes little trouble to find out what is true and good, or when conscience is, by degrees, almost blinded through the habit of committing sin. In such cases, the person is culpable for the evil he commits. And then I quote um, Ralph McInerney, a scholar. One is obliged to act on his own judgment, but he is responsible for making the judgment he does. As St. Thomas puts it, an erroneous conscience may bind, but it does not excuse. So what excuses is if it wasn't your fault you didn't know the truth. But if you didn't know the truth and actually you could have found out and you just weren't bothered, you didn't make the effort that a normal human being should make, um, then you're responsible for making that wrong judgment. And then following. So as you leave class this morning, you see an iPad on the desk and, you know, you'd like an iPad and it could be your iPad actually um, and you take it and take it to your room and you choose not to look too closely to whether the cover looks like your iPad or not. 
Yes, you choose not to make the normal effort to analyse. In the bar, you choose to have what is somebody else's beer. Yeah. Um, your beer was half empty, that beer is three quarters. Um, you choose not to look too closely, and you just... Um, so we have a general duty to be testing what we think and thinking about it. And if we don't do that, then we're blameworthy for our error. Whereas when we make a judgment in error, and actually we had made a reasonable effort to find out the truth, then we're not blameworthy for it. So there's such a thing as blameworthy error and unblameworthy error. Okay, over the page. Now, I'm about to make things a bit more complicated. Can I go ahead or do we need to pause? Okay, let's make it even more complicated. So, um, so you know what lawyers are like. Lawyers are always arguing over small points in the law. Um, well, the kind of person that likes to do that, there are two ways they do that in moral debates about conscience. What's, and they're here. A doubtful conscience and a perplexed conscience. So first, the doubtful conscience. Conscience is doubtful if it is in a state of uncertainty as to the lawfulness or obligation. The doubt may exist either, uh, the doubt may either concern the existence of a law and moral principle or <coughs> about the existence of a fact. The basic principle reads, in practical doubt about lawfulness of an action, one may not act. So you don't know whether taking this iPad is right or wrong. In a doubtful conscience, you therefore shouldn't take the iPad. So you might be in doubt because you don't know the law. You're not sure about whether theft is a sin or not. That would be doubtful about the law. Doubtful about the fact is you're not sure whether it's your iPad or not. In a situation of doubt, you do not act. You leave the iPad. That's the general principle. That's what's called a doubtful conscience. There's another thing, slightly similar but not quite, called a perplexed conscience. And this is where your kind of your conscience is wobbling, perplexed. The perplexed conscience is a type of erroneous conscience which, in a conflict of duties, fears sin in whatever choice it makes. In such instances, if the decision can be delayed, one must first postpone the action in order to obtain information and deliberate on it. But if the decision cannot be postponed, one must choose what appears to be the lesser evil or, if this is impossible to settle, either of the alternatives. Such conflicts more readily occur in individuals who are less acquainted with the moral norm. 
So you want an example. Um, a mother has a starving child and she's not sure whether her duty to feed her child is more important than her duty not to steal from the shop. She is, in, she is perplexed. She has two duties in front of her. Do not steal. Do not let your child go hungry. Which should she do? She is perplexed. Well, if she's able to wait and think, then that's the first thing to do, to not act yet. But if there's an urgency to the situation, that the child is really in need now, then she needs to do what seems to be the lesser of the evils. Which isn't saying it's right, it's saying her ability to evaluate is so limited that the only choice she sees is what looks less bad. And that phrase there, these conflicts readily occur in people who are less acquainted with moral norms. So the type of parishioner who comes to you um, and they're stealing at work. Yeah, so this is a fairly common scenario. They're stealing at work um, and they're not sure whether it's a sin or not. And people who don't think much morally, it's a real struggle to make those judgments. That they might be in a habit of stealing from work. And everybody else they know steals at this workplace. And so they, it's hard for them to evaluate. And so the first time they're talking this through with anybody, it seems very complicated to them. And so these conflicts occur most in people that are not used to thinking about things morally. And for you as a pastor, that situation will arise often. Either someone's read a book and it suddenly made them think, what's God asking of me in life? Or they've heard a really good sermon and it's just triggered something that has made them suddenly think, well, at work, how am I behaving at work? And it's our role then as priests to actually help people to be serious with them, but not to be too rapidly judgmental. And that here's someone who's actually coming looking for the truth, and we need to kind of help them see it. And honesty in the business place is a difficult thing, particularly in so many businesses where the level of dishonesty is so systemic. Um, to kind of begin to be honest there is very difficult. And sometimes what I think we need to say as a priest is, well, if you're concerned about living a good life, then actually looking for another job would actually be the healthiest way to go about that. And you say you're in an environment where everybody treats each other badly and everybody's stealing from the company. Well, yes, I can talk with you about the right way to behave there, but it would actually be better for you to go somewhere else if you're able to find another job.
Throw a doubtful conscience, you're in doubt, don't do anything. A perplexed conscience, which basically is doubtful, but there's an urgency about making a decision now. Do what at least appears less evil. Okay, so the last thing we're going to do this morning before I explain to you the assignment, next assignment. Um, so a series of question, uh, quotations there from the Catechism on the need to educate your conscience, which is what we've kind of touched on in the background of a number of things. So there are six paragraphs if we just go around and you each read one, so starting Max. Conscience must be informed in moral judgment in life and the willful conscience is upright and truthful. It formulates its judgments according to reason, in conformity with the true good will by the wisdom of the Creator. Educa education of conscience is indispensable for human beings who are subjected to negative influences and tempted by sin to defer their own judgment and to reject authoritative teachings. The education of the conscience is a lifelong task. From the earliest years, it awakens the child to the knowledge and practice of the interior law recognized by conscience. Prudent education teaches virtue. It prevents or cures fear, selfishness, and pride, resentment arising from guilt, and feelings of complacency, born of human weakness and faults. The education of the conscience guarantees freedom and, the engenders, and engenders peace of heart. In the formation of conscience, the word of God is the light for our path. We must assimilate it in faith and prayer and put it into practice. We must also examine our conscience before the Lord's cross. We are assisted by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, aided by the witness or advice of others, and guided by the authoritative teaching of the church. Man is sometimes confronted by situations that make moral judgments much assured decision difficult. He must always seriously seek what is right and good and discern the will of God expressed in divine law. Ignorance of Christ and his gospel, bad example given by others, enslavement to one's passions, assertion of a mistaken notion of anatomy of conscience, rejection of the church's authority and her teaching, lack of conversion and of charity. These can be at the source of error, of judgment, and moral conduct. The church not only proposes immutable moral truths and attitudes which go against the grain, but also proposes them as a key to the good of humanity and social development. Christians have the mission of taking this challenge. The education of consciences therefore become a priority. Okay, let me just um, flag up a scenario then so um, the culture we're living in a young man growing up teenager the culture around him pretty much teaches him um, that his that young girls are just sexually available to him um, pornography everything else that is kind of the the morals we're mixing among so if he behaves absorbing that attitude, set of opinions, 
if he behaves that way, he might behave in a way that in his conscience he thinks is okay. He's doing something wrong, treating young women that way, but he thinks it's okay. But he does have a duty. He's a, he's a rational being. And he does, even in the midst of our society, live in a world where there are people who talk about other ways of viewing women. He is capable of learning something right about how to relate to women. And so he does have a duty to be not just doing what's pleasant to him, but actually challenging his own behavior and how he's seeking to learn. But how blameworthy is he for doing the wrong thing? Well, he might well grow up with a father who treats women badly. He might well grow up where there is no father. That he may have no good male role models. So how blameworthy is he for having the wrong thinking? He has the wrong thinking, he's making the wrong judgments, he's treating women badly. But how blameworthy is he for those wrong judgments? But he's not as blameworthy as if I was to do those things. So blameworthiness is something only God knows, you know, how guilty someone is. But it is... Being wrong doesn't mean you're blamed for being wrong but it also doesn't mean you're um, not responsible for being wrong, because you do have a duty to be seeking to know the truth. But if, as that catechism paragraph puts it, you just basically, you don't, you choose not to know, because actually you've got a sense that if you thought about this too much, and if you sought the advice of somebody else they might actually cause you to change your way of living and you choose just not to think about it well that choosing not to think about it for a rational being is a very serious thing to choose not to do and in that scenario you are then blamed for the wicked way you treat those young women Okay, how many of you have got the assignment sheet with you? Um, the, ne the next assignment question is on conscience. So I just want, we've got just over five minutes to check that you all feel you understand the question and you're happy with answering it. Do you all have it or do you want me to write it on the board? Um, so...
if I follow an erroneous conscience will it send me to hell okay so that's making the question the stakes very high um, is it going to send you to hell or not so your conscience is erroneous if you follow it will you go to hell and I put in brackets this is presuming the issue follow is a matter of grave matter we've not yet looked at mortal sin yet but I'm presuming you all know enough of the catechism to know there are serious sins and unserious sins venial and mortal so we're assuming here that it's about something that is serious enough in itself be a matter of heaven or hell. So the question to focus on in the assignment is the conscience question, the error question, and the blame question. Does the due date still apply for Friday 24th? Or does it take the place of the assignment? That's a good question. Um, The principle of double effects question would have been on today's lecture. So I think we'll swap those two dates around. Does everyone hear that? So that the assignment two and assignment three, we're going to swap those two due dates. And although you've all submitted them today, um, I'd have been happy for you to submit them a week ago. Um, I'm only giving you dates that give you plenty of time. Sometimes having more time actually isn't helpful. But anyway, so you should have plenty of time with that. But do you all feel comfortable with the question? As a kind of summary of all of today's lecture? And in those notes, there are various texts for you to look at and to quote. Um, I don't need you to look anywhere else. I mean, other, you, there's some, those wider bits in the catechism there, but um, that should give you all the information you know. All right? Okay, let's close in prayer.